Ashley Smith, and you're listening to Slearicates. It has recently come to my attention that a very well-educated, highly intelligent, adult listener who may or may not live in my house (laughs) was not aware of how subscriptions work to this podcast. So uh, just just as a PSA for any of you out there who are having the same problems as the, <laughs> someone who may or may not be a, a doctor of medicine from <laughs> Johns Hopkins University, in, your, in iTunes, you can subscribe to Slee Ricketts. You just hit the plus or the check or whatever or follow. And then all that means is for free, every episode will show up on your phone every week as it comes out. That's all that means. If you like the show and you would like to hear more of it, then you can go to sleerickets.substack.com, put in your email address, subscribe for free to, well, you can subscribe for free. I don't send much out to the free subscribers, but I do send stuff occasionally. So if you want to do that, you're welcome to do that as well. After you put in your email address, you can also opt to pay a couple bucks a month and then you will get access to six episodes. I put out a new one last week or this past week. There are six secret show episodes up there and more coming all the time. Definitely more to come in the next week or two. So that's how you do that. That's how, you, that's how subscriptions work. Sleerickets.substack.com. Uh, people do really enjoy The Secret Show, and I, I hope you will give it a try. If not, then maybe just take a moment sometime this week to recommend the show to somebody you think might like it. And to all of you who might be new, this is uh, we've got, got a lot of new listeners this week. Uh, welcome. This is fucking Slee Ricketts. Uh, I've got a pretty cool guest this week. For years now, at Joanna's recommendation, I have been listening to a podcast called Other People with Brad Listy. Uh, it is a books podcast. It is sort of my model for books podcasts. Uh, we argue about the people he interviews. We argue about him. We disagree with a lot that comes up on the show, but also find a lot pretty valuable. Other People is a, is a widely beloved and highly popular podcast Uh, as well as being a really insightful one that brings in some terrific writers, mostly fiction writers, but a lot of poets as well. One of the subplots of the podcast for as long as I have been listening to it has been a book that the host has been working on and abandoning and reconceiving and starting from scratch on over and over and over again for years. And to be honest, I really never thought he would finish it, except then he did, and it's out now. And I, I read it and enjoyed it. It is, for being you know, some 10 years in the making, it is remarkably breezy and fun and light and conversational and uh, just a total pleasure to read. Uh, Brad was nice enough not just to send me a review copy, but also to come on the show and have a conversation with me. So we talked for quite a long time. This is, you know, I think a a really tight sort of essential cut of our conversation about poetry, about fiction, about 
podcasting about a lot of things. Uh, and then on the secret show uh, feed, I will put out a very strong case that Brad makes for macro dosing psychedelics. That'll be on the secret show feed. But right now, please enjoy my conversation with Brad Listy, host of the Other People podcast and author of several books, most recently, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything, a novel that is also sort of, as you will find out, a memoir. So you, you have you do have this this passage early on that's this I, I found you know vicariously embarrassing but also really enjoyable where you you catalog at least a few of the failed books that led up to this book but in, you sort of continually throughout you talk about them and one of them is a screenplay but you, like you talk about them as if they are like versions of this, like they, like all of them in some way end up being this. And the, the, you have this series of descriptions of what I think of as your alter egos. You say one was a self-loathing high school chemistry teacher whose dog is dying of cancer. <laughs> and one is a desperate man caught in the grim logic of hyper-capitalism. Yeah. And then my favorite is a heartbroken 40 year old poet who lives with his parents in a bland suburban hell. <laughs> and you feel like all of them somehow they, they are these sort of like shadow versions of, of the main character of this book. Sure. Yeah. I mean, psychologically anyway, you know, like it's obviously a reach, but it's just, we've all, I think most writers have felt if you've experienced failure, you know, a sense of doom and ennui and isolation. And, um, I think any, I mean, most any writer with very rare exceptions has felt himself or herself caught inside the grim logic of hypercapitalism. Um, so, you know, I, I'm speaking from some degree of experience, but it is interesting to me thinking back on previous iterations that seem pretty far afield from what it ultimately wound up in this book uh, and being able to consider them of a piece because I do think there are thematic parallels or, th- you know, there are themes that I'm working on regardless. And, you know, it's also kind of embarrassing at the level of avoidance because it's like, wow, I was really trying to speak some sort of truth by avoiding the truth. And, you know, I struggle with this. I struggle with this as a reader sometimes, but not always. And I struggle with it as a writer because it's like you have things that are on your mind that are bothering you or that you are confused about or that move you somehow if you're a writer like who's wired like me anyway. And some writers are able, I guess, to grapple with that sort of stuff by creating these like layered fictions. And I have not yet been able to do that. I think I have tried, but ultimately I just find myself, you know, I finally found myself getting to the point where I just started talking about in a fictional way, you know, there was some, there is some artifice and some real fiction to my book, but just started trying to go directly into it and to look carefully at it and to not move. I guess there's space for both. There's not a right or a wrong answer, but I'm just fascinated by my failed attempts to do that you know, the, in the, in the really heavily fictionalized layered way versus, you know, the more auto fiction mode. And I should say too, you know, that it was also a situation where previous iterations were unfolding while like personal trauma was unfolding. Right. So I talk about this in the book as well, how previous iterations were disrupted by these episodes in my personal life that really reoriented me in terms of how I was relating to the project that I was working on. So, 
you know, that's a real thing. You know, I, I, I think that sometimes life can intervene and suddenly the thing that you were working on that seemed interesting can seem like a trifle, you know, or just seem like something totally unrelatable. And that, that was difficult too. I don't know. Maybe I was too easily knocked off my, knocked off my perch, you know. I don't but, know. I mean, I mean there, there's like some really profound heartbreak in this book. And I mean, and you, you have, I mean, there deaths and losses of different kinds and, and, you know, struggle and sort of, I mean, it's heart, heartwarming and heartbreaking uh, difficulties with a, a child, you know, who has some severe disabilities. One of, in a weird way, like one of the more disheartening literary moments in the book is one where you, you sort of, you do the responsible thing as a writer and you fly, I'm saying you, it's a sort of, sort of you, sort of this, this char it's character that's very closely related to you, but I, I confuse the two, you know, forgive me. No, sure. But the, the, the hero flies to Israel to research a book and to, you know, try to like get it right, to do the thing you're supposed to do as a, as a you know, not necessarily write what you, you, what you know, but know what you write. And, and it's there like in the midst of doing this research that it just becomes, you even say, it's like, it's some great moment where it's like, after a brief exchange with the waiter, I realized my book would fail. It was like, it was like <laughs> yeah. this little like triv trivial moment that reveals the, the emptiness of the whole endeavor. Well, I think we play tricks on ourselves sometimes, or at least I do, where you think like you're always looking for like a breakthrough, right? Especially right. when you're struggling with a book where you're like, man, you know, I think I need to go there, which I actually did in real life. This is something that I actually <laughs> did years ago where I was working on this book just to give listeners some context. Uh, you know, I was working on a book about a guy who tries to sell one of his kidneys for $300,000 to somebody in Israel. And I picked Israel because it felt like a dramatic location. I had also done a little bit of internet research and found out that the, the black market for kidneys was particularly hot in Israel. You know, that was like all I needed. And I was like, okay, yes, this is it. You know, like, <laughs> he'll go to the Holy Land and he'll sell this kidney. I have no idea what it's like in Israel. I am going to go there and this is going to break the book open for me. And it gave me a sense of direction, you know, when I was feeling a little bit adrift. And so I kind of talked my wife into it. I was like, you know, we just had a baby. We, our, our daughter was like one, you know, and I'm like, I'm going to leave town, but I'm only going to be gone for a long weekend, which like adds a level of absurdity because yeah. it's like a 15 hour flight, you know? And, uh, you know, I went there. It was, a, it was honestly, it was amazing. It was great to go there. I loved being there and, and seeing uh, Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. I wish I would have had more time. I would have gone elsewhere, you know, but uh, it's an amazing place. And I uh, got to see, you know, seeing the old city in Jerusalem is just crazy. There's something surreal about it. You know, it definitely feels very old world. And yet it also feels kind of like a mall <laughs> right. in the, in the way that like, you know, things often do these days, it's just been commercialized and, you know, it's, it's like an outdoor mall with a biblical aesthetic is I think the way that I put it in the book, something like that. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think that there, it's a little bit of magical thinking that leads you into these things. Uh, you know, this isn't to say that research or travel research or experiential research can never yield fruit. But maybe for me, I was leaning into it a little bit too hard, or maybe I didn't have the book as firmly in hand as I needed to before I made a decision to go do this. Or maybe it just wasn't my, it wasn't the book I was meant to write. You know, it wasn't the story that I was wired to tell. And again, I, I think maybe it's just because it started to feel impersonal to me. I, I might just be somebody who can only work from the inside out. 
it, it's a question that I have about my creative life. And I don't know, maybe that's fine. There are a lot of writers who are that way that I, you know, I love to read. And then there are some writers who are just wonderful on the page, conjuring stories, you know, that seem to come from out of thin air or from very far afield. And maybe you just have to accept yourself, um, you know, as an artist in terms of how you work, but it definitely, I definitely did have that experience while I was there where you could sort of, I was like, this isn't going to work. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like this is like the book isn't going to work for me. And this trip is not going to yield, you know, the magical like pearls of wisdom that I was anticipating it yielding. And it wasn't because it was a bad trip. It was just because I had expectations for it that were ultimately unrealistic. Yeah. But there, there, it, it, I do appreciate how you, you, there is a moment then after the trip when, when the, the hero gets home and he cheerfully lies to his wife about how <laughs> successful, because, which to me, like I read that, like, it just felt very true that like, there's, there's something so desperate about the place of writing in the economy of a marriage where you're like, no, this isn't a total sham. Like I'm not, this isn't completely yeah. worthless. I promise this is yeah, yeah. the valuable exchange we have. Right. And I think too, like, even then, if I'm, you know, I'm trying to remember years ago, but I think like, even then, maybe I hadn't fully condemned it, you know, right. like I had that moment of like kind of uh, insight or moment of hard truth, you know, in Jerusalem. But then even then you're still holding on to hope, you know, you get home yeah, and you're yeah. like, well, maybe I'll be able to salvage something from this. Right. And so you just try to stay positive with people. Um, not only because you don't want to reveal <laughs> your exploits as a sham, but also because you're trying to keep your own spirits up, you know, like you gotta, you gotta keep believing and, or at least I do. I think eventually you get, you run out of places to hide though, you know, with enough failures and enough time goes by, eventually you just have to start copping to it. Like this is a struggle, you know? And I think I yeah. certainly got there with my family, you know, like, and, and with my podcast audience, you know, you eventually get to a place where you're just candid about it. I like to think that that sort of candor can be helpful to people who are in a similar struggle because it's not very unique ultimately. Uh, I think a lot of people have long battles with books and I think individual books can be tougher than others. You know, I think a story like this that's dealing with so much difficulty and failure and, uh, you know, pain, like uh, emotional pain and just loss and grief and all that kind of stuff it makes some sense to me that it would be a tough book to write. And, you know, it's also worth flagging that there's a, you know, there's an onus on a writer to render a book that's actually palatable to a reader. You know, it's not enough yeah. to just tell the truth or just to put the the facts on the page or whatever, you know, in a, in a way that's clear and meaningful. Like you really have to craft it like there's a level of artistry involved in making sure that you're writing a book that somebody could actually benefit from reading <laughs> right and it won't just feel like a like a bludgeoning and there were previous iterations of the book where i certainly felt like i was being candid but i wasn't taking care of the reader well enough and those books were to a degree that's kind of embarrassing in retrospect intolerable for readers because it was just <laughs> it was just too much yeah. so if there's a lesson that i took from this book that might be useful to somebody who could be working in a similar vein it's that uh i think i ultimately learned about having to be economical in the telling um not only from the level of concision but also in the level of um you know at the level of what to leave out you know you don't need to say everything 
Yeah. Uh, sometimes you can say, you know, you pick your, you pick your moments and you can get everything on the page that is necessary for the reader to have a whole experience without hammering them with every single tough truth, you know? Right. Yeah. Calvino has a great moment in his essay on quickness where he, he talks about the, no, it's, it's not quick. It's an essay on lightness, but he talks about the, like writing about terrible atrocity or horror or doom in he compares it to uh, Perseus slaying Medusa. And he says, like, you have to look at it glancingly in the mirror. You can't, if you stare at it directly, you turn to stone. But if you look at it glancingly, then that, like, that's maybe how you can, you can address it. Uh, yeah, the, yeah. Like maybe there, there's some part of like balance too, you know, between, um, you know, pathos and comedy. I think that's definitely something that I try for. You know, I'm always trying to make sure that there are some laughs and some, yeah. you know, that there's some levity in a book, especially one that's dealing with trauma and difficulty and grief and stuff. Because, you know, not only does that make it a more enjoyable experience for a reader, I mean, that's certainly the case for me as a reader. I always appreciate when there's dark humor in a tough book. Yeah. But it's also truer to life for me. You know, I don't experience life as being some sort of like monolithic uh dark experience you know you there's always laughs somewhere in there or there's always absurdity somewhere in there and often at unexpected times and so i like for art to reflect that i like for my art to reflect that anyway um it just feels truer to me yeah there's, there's a um some some scholar somebody made the distinction that uh for the Greek, like in the Greek view of the world, uh, tragedy was man's vision of himself and comedy was, was God's vision of man. And it feels like some of the best parts of this book are the moments when there's a sort of a, a sudden toggling between like the narrator's profound navel gazing and then like the cosmos's mockery at like the silliness of his predicament. Yeah. Like, yeah, exactly. You know. Like perspective, you know, yeah. I, I think I'm always scrambling for that in life. And, I think this book definitely has a cosmic air to it on purpose because, uh, you know, I think when you're dealing with really tough stuff in life, you, most human beings anyway, naturally go into that mode because it's like, how do you make sense of the really existential, terrible stuff in life? Uh, for me, it can be a great comfort to sort of even just to look at the sky at night, you know, just be like, okay, this is fucking weird. And it's so easy to lose sight of that. It's so easy to get caught up in the rigmarole of day-to-day -day existence and to get tricked into the illusion of reality and to really buy into it like whole hog. And I know that at a level of practicality, you have to do some of that. You know, you can't constantly have your head in the stars, you know, and function as a human being on this planet. But uh, there does need to be some toggling back and forth. It is wise, I think, to take a moment and just go, okay, wait a minute. Like, you know, you're taking yourself pretty seriously or you really think you've got a hold on things, don't you? And no, you don't. None of us do. And I think that, you know, those are moments where you can ventilate uh, a difficult story or, a, a, you know, a, 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 like a, a story that can easily fall into a suffocating mode. You know, you need to find places to ventilate it and you need to find moments of levity to keep the reader off balance and maybe keep things real. I know that like there are certain stories where humor is a bad idea. 
I've, you know, I've talked about Austerlitz in previous interviews before, but that's just an example of a book that like should not be funny and isn't and is really difficult. I don't know if you've read it, the WGC. It's like about the kinder transport, you know, all these Jesus. Yeah. So (laughs) you're not like, good luck finding any levity in a story (laughs) like that. So I, you know, again, I, I have to be careful about I never want to talk too broadly or sound like I'm making some sort of, you know, grand statement about how books should be, but just generally speaking, you know, you, uh, you can usually find uh, some places to joke if you're anything like me and it makes for a more bearable writing experience and probably a more bearable reading experience if the jokes land. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, in some way that, that actually kind of helps me clarify something. So I I, I should have said at the beginning, my, my wife is is a huge huge fan of yours. She actually wrote you a, a fangirl letter uh, that I, that you very quickly and very generously responded to, and she was very touched. Uh, but oh. she so she, she and I have kind of listened and and argued and talked about your podcast for years. One of the things that I think both of us find most sort of like distant or strange for, because we we both like grew up in the South, educated in the East Coast, and you're like a Midwesterner who lives in LA. And I think like the, the, it's often like the, the big view, like the, the, the view of the universe, the spiritual view or the new age view or whatever that feels, I feel like for like most of the people in our lives are either like committed, confident theists or brutal atheists. You know, like there's, there's, there's a kind of like a, it's like, it's important to take up arms on one side of this divide over here. Whereas it feels like over there, there's just a little bit, everything's like, depending on how you look at it, like either a little bit more humble or a little bit more woo woo. And I think like the way you're putting it, which seems to be in terms of like not taking things too seriously, that in a way like that makes that perspective make a little more sense to me. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, when it comes to like, because this book is about spiritual struggle, yeah, uh, like pretty openly, and it's like it's also like but the the responsibility that a, it's about a, the responsibility that a parent can feel to try to like orient their kids into existence, you know, at that level. Um, I think ultimately, I just don't know. Yeah. I don't think anybody knows, and. I think maybe there are, you know, I think there are definitely some great teachers and people who have made great progress in understanding through the ages who are worth reading and listening to. I have been uh, benefited greatly by like Buddhist psychology in particular, but that's, you know, it's really arguably not religion. I I don't get into Buddhism at the level of uh, mysticism or mythology. I get into it at like very practical psychological insight and how it addresses and communicates about human suffering. And I think it has a lot to say there, but it also has a lot to say about like, um, you know, interbeing and, um, you know, kind of like in a natural sciences kind of way about the way in which um, matter and energy are organized that are persuasive to me. So, you know, I've benefited there, but I don't, I still don't feel like I have any kind of, like ultimate grand insight. It's just too big. I, I think that's a ludicrous proposition for people to take. So I think in this book, I was trying to, arti- like I say, I'm trying to articulate my confusion. And I think yeah. it's it's about, you know, wanting to engage with that kind of stuff, honestly, and wanting to like be rigorous. Like I think it's, it, it is an important thing for me to explore and to think about, you know, I don't think it's about 
well, I just have no idea and this feels too big for me. So I just surrender and then right. kind of fall into a mode where I'm living almost exclusively inside the rigmarole, as I put it earlier. You know, I, I like to try to spend time in both places. Like I, you know, there's the practical real world, but also there's the, you know, there are ultimate truths out there and big spiritual questions and big metaphysical questions and astrophysical questions and things like yeah. that. And, um, I, you know, I think there's, there's gotta be room for both. And so ultimately it's about trying to find some humility and some honesty and maybe trying to come up with in a, you know, a very kind of like humble personal way, like new models of thinking about this sort of stuff, because like you said, it's become bifurcated in ways that can be really unhelpful where you're either like a hardcore atheist or a hardcore theist and you're picking teams and you know, these people who think they have God's private telephone number and they know the one true (laughs) God. I mean, just, it's an absurdity to me. And you know, in your podcast, you will, you will occasionally, not very often, but occasionally interview poets or like you interviewed Zach Smith who like writes prose, but also poetry. And then in the um, book, one of the failed projects is this screenplay called Man of Letters, or it's a movie treatment. I don't know if it was a whole screenplay or not, but it's a movie treatment called Man of Letters, which is about a, that's the the the, the sad suburban middle-aged spoken word poet. Yeah, yeah. It, it made me wonder what your background with poetry is. First of all, like, I really hope that's a real treatment, whether or not. I wrote that script. I did write that script (laughs) and I did try to sell it. Um, And I did want Will Ferrell to star in it. That was my dream. I still think it would be perfect casting, I think. Yeah. I still think it would be, I still think that poetry is really funny. Um, Like it's good fodder for comedy. And I, I'm sort of sad that Hollywood has never agreed with me, but you know, I get that it's a tough sell. Um, And uh, my background with poetry really goes back to my youth. Uh, I was good at writing rhyming poetry as a kid. And and like Shel Silverstein was very big for me when I was a child to the point where like, I remember like going to my little elementary school library and hiding, like reshelving the copies of his books in places where only I would know where they were so that I could always (laughs) get them. (laughs) Um, And so I did that. I don't know why I could always have like a knack for writing silly rhyming poems or whatever. And I liked a lot of those, you know, a lot of those board books and children's literature that rhymed and that was funny. Um, you know, Shel, Shel Silverstein for a lot of kids is like their introduction to subversive literature. You know, there's something subversive and uh, funny and dark about his work. So I think if there was any like, you know, any background for me with poetry, it goes back to childhood. But as an adult, I have not written poetry. I've got too much on my plate with other things, you know, the podcast and then trying to write usually like auto fiction, which tends to be my mode. Um, But I love poetry and I love it as a, uh, what's the word? It sort of greases the wheels for me as a writer. I always recommend this to people. Like if you're sitting at the desk and you're having a hard time getting started, like reading poetry can be great because, and this is what I really like, this is a huge, uh, like North star for me as a, uh, you know, personally as a writer is the concision in poetry. That's like what poetry demands. Like it really requires of the poet that they try to say as much as possible in as few words as possible. And I kind of think that should be the, the dictum. I mean, that's the dictum that I kind of hold myself to as a writer of prose too. Uh, It's very easy to get carried away with yourself. 
Like we, we become writers. Plenty of, plenty of poets do too. But. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, but I mean, and I, I don't think maybe you can ever get it perfect. You know, I think we always have moments like there's surely places in my book where some writers are going, we don't need this, you know, and I am desperately trying to avoid all of those moments. And I love like, not that I like, you know, I don't think you have to work in like a Kmart realism or, you know, a Hemingway style, but like, I got to say, I love the the sense of like hammered prose and just like stripped down to the essentials nature of writers like that, you know, and it, you can be lyrical and still feel like there's no wasted motion. So you don't have to be like hard bitten or, you know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't have to be like that kind of nouns and verbs uh, kind of thing. Like there are different ways you can do it, but I just really tried hard and always will try hard to make sure that there's not a single word on the page that doesn't really need to be there. And so poetry does that for me. It also works, you know, it works in these beautiful ways uh, at the level of abstraction and gets me thinking big a lot of the time, especially if it's good poetry. Um, I think poets often have spiritual stuff on their mind, which I certainly do and is a central part of my work. And I use that word loosely. It's just meaning sure. like, like what the fuck is going on? I would love to write like a set of like, five to 10 more 200 page or 250 page books that feel urgent and have a lot on their mind and are very honest. I, but yeah, I, I could change. Who knows? Maybe my mood will change in a year. Who knows? It was, I mean, I, I was curious about that because the, you know, the part of the book feels like, uh, like a giving up of the ego and giving up of a certain kind of ambition and saying like, I'm like, like, fuck it. Let's just, let's just do this for real. Let's just, you know, there's a, there is a, a, uh, like you, you say at some point, like I spent the first half of my life trying to become somebody and I'm going to spend the second half of my life learning, learning how to be nobody. I'm, I'm not quoting it precisely, but, but there's a line in your, is it like the, the hero has this existential crisis when he, he, he briefly thinks he has cancer after watching a Bob Marley documentary and <laughs> Bob Marley gets, you know, cancer. Uh, it, uh, and he, the line is like, he, he died, uh, uh, what is it? I want to get it. Yeah. He died age 36. And then this like such a perfect, like little writerly inclusion. He died age 36, his legacy secure. Which is like, it's like obviously like a horrible tragedy, but like part of you, if you're a writer, can't help but think like, well, he got it in. Like he, like he, it was, you know, it was okay because he'd gotten all this good. Like we all, he was going to be a Bob Marley forever. And it made me wonder about like, what is the how do you think about your legacy or what it is you do as like your writerly legacy? Right. Right. I think it's the podcast and the books. I mean, that's, if it's going to be anything, it's going to be that, but I, th I see the two things as related and I am under like no illusions. I don't I mean, it's all like even Bob Marley's music is going to turn to dust one day. It'll, he'll become a nothing too, you know, but like, He's an artist of extraordinary staying power and currency. Like he's somebody I really admire. Like think about how fresh and everyday that music sounds even to this day. Yeah. Um, it's kind of eternal, you know, I don't know how he did it, but he's got a, uh, he channeled something for a few years and it just, it just continues to resonate. But uh, I think for me, you know, I can't think too much about because legacy, some it's kind of other people's concern, right? It has nothing to do with me. Ultimately, I have no idea. I don't have any expectations around that. But what I can control is trying to build a body of work. Yeah. And I think that that is the impulse that keeps me 
um, making the podcast, you know, like for like whatever it's worth, you know, to people now or in the future. I like the idea of having this big body of work that people can delve into. I don't know. Like I, I take pride in it. I think that there's a lot of value to be found in those conversations, like certainly for me personally. So if that's happening for me, then I imagine it could be of use to others uh, if they choose to engage with it. And then, you know, for the books, it almost feels more personal than commercial or external. You know, it's like, well, I want my kids to have access to this stuff. I want them to be able to know like my interior in an intimate way, because it can be strange when you think about people in your family or people that you're close to, like how much of a divide there often is, even when you feel like you know them well, you know, then they die and it's like, well, wait, who the fuck was that? You know? And like, why didn't we ever really talk about stuff that was truly meaningful? And it's just hard to do. You know, I think it's hard for people to articulate that stuff. It's hard to find space maybe in life and time in life to get into that, those conversations. They're not super easy to have all always. Um, but I think I have some impulse to try to record myself, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, for better or for worse. And I think it's trying to communicate with the people that I'm closest to. Huh. That's, I hadn't, I wonder, I mean, that's in some ways that's a, I mean, like Montaigne said, that, like he hoped he was, of course, like had like horrible and curable t- kidney stones while he was writing. But like he he said, like while he was writing his essays, that he wanted his friends to be able to like take one off the shelf when he was dead and feel like they were having a conversation with him. Which is, which like I really, I find that very moving. But it also feels like it makes like it's more native in a way to the conversational format, like the like to an essay or to certainly like the the podcast. But it's. That's interesting. Like, I, I, I don't know that I've thought about it in those terms, but you think about your, like your fiction as, as being in part a, like a, a love letter to your own family, to your own children, your own, like those close to you. Yeah. I mean, I think it comes down to like this understanding that I think I have about uh, universality, you know, and how the more personal you are and kind of the more miniature, you know, the scale that you're working in, the more likely it is to resonate. It's like when you try to say real big, like really big grand things, it rarely works out, or at least that's been my experience. You know, for me, it's about going in uh, inward and getting intimate and private and candid. And then suddenly people can relate, even if it's not in a one for one way, like people don't have to have gone through all the different, different things that I've been through in order to find a line of connection. I just think that there's something human in work that does that, you know, that I'm aspiring to. I do think the people who write auto fiction or who have that wiring, you know, it is part of, it's part of like wanting to be known and also recognizing as a reader, how much I get from that kind of writing. I think we're often emulating the kind of writing that we just most, most respond to. And I find it to be a great relief when I'm reading somebody on the page, who's being really deeply honest with me and is rendering their lived experience of reality clearly. I don't know. It makes me feel like it bridges that divide, makes me feel less lonely and makes me feel a sense of like real, like I, I, I read those kinds of books and like, I really do feel like I know the person and it's just lovely. You know, I know that there's always going to be some gaps, but I think it's real. You know, it's like the person, it's, it's an act of generosity. The person is like really offering themselves to you 
and they're saying like, here I am. And it's kind of like a exhibitionist almost, you know, it's like a real, it's a real, uh, you know, act of like disrobing. <laughs> right. But it's, it's like, it has to be like a hospitable exhibitionism. Yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's the challenge. Cause if you just are just, you know, disrobing and it's kind of like <laughs> done in a kind of careless way, or you're like just a, like, like, here I am. You know. It's like, okay, okay, okay. Put it back on. You know, like we got it. We got it. We got it. But yeah, that's the art of it is doing it in a way that's like uh, palatable for a reader. And that is putting their concerns in like a primary position, you know, rather than just wanting to kind of divulge or like get something off your chest. It's not about that. You know, like writing a book is about communicating and you have to be really, really cognizant of the reader. And that's not something that comes as naturally or as easily to me as I wish that it did. And maybe it's the material too. Like maybe there'll be future books, God willing, there'll be future books where it's just like uh, fires right out of me and everybody just cheers. <laughs> There's this story that's very, I think, common in conversations with novelists that you've, you know, it's, it's come up with you as well, that you like, you write, you write your failed book and failed book and failed book. And then, and then finally the last, like, then finally it succeeds and it's okay. But I wonder about like, I've known a number of novelists who wrote some great books that didn't get published and then and, like did finally get books published, but I don't, like, I wonder if telling the story about like how all the books that didn't get published were failures is in part like a, a kind of re, like reassurance because you've said like oh but actually I think that script treatment would be great and actually I think that novel could be great like I wonder do we need to tell a story after the fact about that this was a that this was like a forward progression rather than just like this sold and this didn't yeah no I mean it is all it is all part I mean in a certain light anyway it is all part of a forward progression I you know okay. those 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 quote unquote failed books or failed projects feel like necessary steps along the way to greater and lesser extent. Oh no, I, I just meant like, maybe they aren't like, I think sometimes like, but just like, because something doesn't go or it doesn't sell, like we, we say like, oh, that wasn't as good as what ultimately did sell. But like, maybe, maybe they were like, they didn't sell, but they weren't any worse that like, you know, I guess that's what I mean. Like the story about like that it's forward, it's forward progression in that like you had to do one thing to do the next thing, but like, I guess I think of there's as it like for people who who struggle to publish books, for example, I think there's something reassuring about hearing like, oh, you fail and you fail and you fail. And the reason you haven't succeeded yet is because you haven't written your good book yet. But I also think in some ways that gives the publishing industry too much credit, like for being discriminating enough to identify when it succeeds rather than in some ways being capricious. And as a writer, you have to like you have to kind of in, like invent your own myth to get through it all. Yeah, I mean, I think there are definitely a lot of books like really good books that have just been lost to you know lost into history or whatever because the author couldn't find a publisher or the author didn't have the business skills or the right. personal relationships or whatever to make it happen like that that's sort of a haunting thing to think about uh like the library I, of alexandria <laughs> yeah i mean just like there's you know there are so many good books out there, like almost like too many, you know? And then I think too about all these books being published today, they're just so excellent and wind up finding 500 readers or whatever the case may be, which is still, you know, it's still a lot of people and it's not nothing, but they feel deserving of so much more. You know, when you read a, a great book like this and you realize what a small scale it's operating on commercially, it can be frustrating because you think like, whoa, everybody should have this on their desk, you know, and, or on their nightstand. You know, speaking personally, I think there's some value in the projects that I worked on 
that ultimately did not succeed for me. But there is not a single one of them that I would point to right now and like eagerly hand over to somebody. None of them felt fully realized. I knew that they had not worked even as I wrote them to like a completed draft or something. Um, maybe like Man of Letters, the screenplay, I was like, you know what, this could, if somebody, you know, there would need to be some rewriting. Sure. But I think if the, if the right people got involved, I still think it could work, <laughs> but maybe I'm just stubborn on that one, but. Um, I, I'm the, rooting for it. Yeah, the novels, no. The novels yeah. kind of always felt like not right. Some of them were just outright disasters that I just yeah. like got to like 80,000 words or whatever and was like, well, you know, I'll, I'll redraft it. But uh, there was a significant, significant difference between those attempts and the book that you ultimately read. The yeah. book that that is ultimately uh, in print now was the best creative experience of my life. Like as a writer, like it, it like it's such a relief, you know, because of all the failed attempts and all the frustration and just being kind of haunted by the fact that like I would have wasted all this time or whatever. So the fact that I was able to integrate the failed attempts into the book itself yeah. felt like a kind of victory because I was like, okay, that wasn't all for naught. Like the money that I spent going to Israel actually might pay itself off in some way, you know, or I don't know. It was just a, like it was a victory and I loved it. And it was just so satisfying to go to work on the book every day. I felt like I knew what I was doing. It was finally working. And I've said this before, but like whether or not this book found a publisher or not, I would never have had to have written it again. Okay. Um, there would not have been a do-over, which was a marked change from previous iterations where there was a very open-ended sense of failure and just, just uh, dissatisfaction, you know, whereas with this one, I was like, okay, like I can't do more with this material. Like I said what I needed to say here. And if this isn't good enough, then I can live with it, you know, and it luckily worked out, you know, where somebody liked the book and now it's, now it's going to be out there. Franz Wright has this line. Uh, he of course was, was a, was, you know, was a serious Catholic uh, when he died, but he has this line, when Christ is no longer needed, he will come again. Uh, which I, I often think about with with writing that there is something about. It, I mean, it, it's the it's the hopeful version, but I do think there's some truth to like when you give up on external recognition, or when you give up on the external goal, and you and you are you know that you're doing what's satisfying and what's sufficient to yourself. That's sometimes when things break through. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's exactly right. I think that that's something to aspire to. It can be hard, you know, psychologically, especially as things start to go well. Like, I don't know a writer alive who doesn't have delusions of grandeur in the midst of drafting, especially on a good day. Where you're you like, have to, don't you? you have yeah. To. I mean, yeah. It's, I think it's part of what keeps you going. You know, you have to have moments of positivity and elation, you know, or whatever. Uh, but ultimately, you know, the more you can dispense with, those kinds of expectations and the more you can just be kind of inside the project and working with it on its own terms, you know, the better off you'll be. And I think too, you know, it's just the accrued failure. You take enough punches and eventually you're just like, okay, fuck it. Like now I'm just going to say it or, you know, that <laughs> there's that kind of feeling, you know, like a kind of sense of abandon. And, uh, it's that again, coupled with like a sense of restraint and, and, uh, maybe, you know, finally, like a hard one sense of attunement to the reader. I, I do wonder, other than having the 
time and the focus to revise how do you think because you, you talk about like all a writer can really do the best thing a writer can do is tell the truth and really say every, every you know every un, unappealing every difficult thing how did this differ from your monologues because you that is something you've done consistently like you, you you have these interviews that are pretty in-depth and pretty intimate but then you also you do a little mini version of that solo at the beginning of most episodes where you you divulge i mean it reminded me a little bit of some of those obviously it's, it's much more shaped than those but what was the was there a fundamental difference other than kind of form and revision you know that's a good question because uh, there were there was a time <laughs> You know, in the many iterations of of this book, in the many false starts and failed versions of this book, there was a time where I was so frustrated that I actually spent weeks of my life on a daily basis blindfolding myself <laughs> and recording. Was it? I can't remember if it was voice to text or if I was. Rec I recorded myself just like free associating verbally because I thought to myself, like, wow, if I could just write like I talk when I'm in a kind of like verbal flow state and I'm being candid, it would probably be better for the reader that way. Uh, and that, you know, there's some truth to that, but it's not the full truth because like you yeah. say, you have to shape it. Otherwise it just gets unwieldy and, you know, it's not a good reading experience. There, there's more work to it than that. But yeah, I mean, I think that in a general way, that was something that I was going for. You know, I can often feel like I'm doing my best communicating in the interviews, especially the monologues, I have a complicated relationship with. I feel like it's a little bit indulgent, but a lot of re uh, listeners love them. Yeah, and I hear from them, and I do think it personalizes a podcast. You know, the host talks a little bit, but I don't know. I try to keep it. I have a new rule that I, where I'm trying to keep the monologues like under seven minutes. I think a little bit goes a long way, and sure. I just think that uh, you know, trying to get to a level of energy in the prose where it feels like I'm talking to the reader directly is something I love as a, I love as a reader, you know, it's something I aspire to as a writer. I think there's a certain energy to the spoken word, um, that works well when you can find a way to translate it to uh, prose. I had, I had this sort of like, sad, private, sadistic experience. I don't know if you know the Chapo Trap House guys at all. But one I, of them actually, I went to, uh, years ago, my buddy dragged me to uh, a live show that they did, but I don't listen, yeah. but I, I, I saw them live once. <laughs> yeah, oh, which I imagine was a, <laughs> could either have been a lot of fun or sort of a weird drag, because it seems like those those really can go either way with, po like podcast was, live shows feel like a strange proposition to me. Yeah, I've never done one. I've been asked to do one and I'm always leery because I'm like, really? Like this feels, it just feels like a private affair. You know, it's like, <laughs> like doing a podcast on stage for me, I think for people who maybe are stage performers, like, you know, a comedian yeah, yeah. who does a podcast doing one live, that might sure, be more yeah. of a fit, but book people getting up on stage and doing a live show feels dicey to me. Yeah. And I like the liberty of, of editing out the, my ums. You know, yeah, yeah, no, you want some to, of that nonsense. I like to try to make the uh, the show as pleasant for the listener as possible. There, there's something about podcasting, you know, you're sort of inevitably going to capture yourself on tape if you're doing long form interviews, just being the worst version of yourself, yep. at least a few <laughs> times, you know, and, but that's part of what I think I like about it is that it's like, okay, you can't hide all the warts. This isn't about like, you know, 
performing cosmetic surgery on yourself for the benefit of an audience. You know, there's something about the candor of it that includes maybe the gaffes, you know, and you just try to keep your ratio healthy, you know, like hopefully the good moments outweigh the bad and hopefully people in the aggregate, especially understand that like, while you may falter, sometimes you're ultimately well-intentioned and trying your best, which is really what most of us are doing. I mean, you know, you have to, I don't know. I don't think most people hold people to impossible standards. I think they're just hoping for somebody who's operating in good faith and with a bit of a sense of humor to make this tolerable. Totally. Well, I was just going to say one of the guys has this like separate, but he's like a virtuosic talker and a history buff. And it's like, it's, it's entertaining to listen to, uh, particularly when he you know talks about some history book he's reading. But he, for a while, talked a big game about, it. he's like, all right, just tie, I'm, you know, I'm a thinker. I'm a, I'm a, I, I'm a, 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 a pundit. I need, I need to write. I'm, re- I'm, gonna, I'm ready to write. I'm ready to write now. I have a lot to say. I'm ready. And you talked for a long time about how he was, he was sort of getting ready to write this book. And there, there was finally this moment when he was able to talk nonstop for two hours with great erudition and in an, in an engrossing way. But at some point, he kind of acknowledged, like, I can't write. Like, it's just too fucking hard. Like, I can't, like, every time I sit down to do it, I think I should just be talking. And, you know, part of me sadistically was like, that's right, it is fucking hard. But it, right. it's, you know, it's, I can't, I don't know how much of that is, uh, is habit or is just sort of like the medium or like the, maybe it's like partly the, the terror of, of like not, at least if you have a theoretical audience, you can trick yourself into thinking you're entertaining someone. Whereas if you're staring at the page yourself, you know, you're boring yourself. Like, you know, you haven't fooled anybody yet. Yeah, it is uniquely difficult. And I've heard it, I've heard it said by many people in many different professions, you know, who sit down to try to write a book, writing a book is one of the hardest (laughs) things to do. I will go to bat for that any day of the week. And I think that it, presents just unique challenges. I think the solitary part of it, it makes it difficult. I think there's something to the formality of it, you know, sitting there staring at the flashing cursor and kind of coming to grips with the fact that like, this is going to be in print. Like, what do I actually have to say? You know, like it, uh, it can freeze you up. And it's also frustrating because there's a lot of variance or variability to performance you know, from day to day, like some days it's easier than others. Some days you just have nothing and that can be scary and can really like sap your, your will, you know, to continue or really affect your morale. And, you know, I think too, that it's a lot of thought work. You know, I think maybe when you're actually writing and you're writing well, the thought part of your brain might be shut down a little bit and you might be in some kind of flow state, but Uh, you know, ultimately you're going to have to do a lot of hard thinking about what you're trying to do and what you want to say. And most people do not like to do that kind of work. It's not pleasant. It's a really rigorous and challenging, and it involves a lot of failure. And then there's the part of it where I think that, you know, there's no hiding. It's just you you've written the book. It's your words on the page. There's nobody else to blame. And you can't just write it off as like, oh, it's something I said in conversation and it was a goof. You know, this is something you've taken the time to put into print and share with the world. And if it doesn't make sense or it doesn't work, there's nobody else to blame. And so it can be a lot, you know, to, uh, to deal with. And I think there's a reason why, uh, 
there are a lot of, you know, people in like people who are not book people who write books who wind up using ghostwriters. <laughs> oh God, uh, yeah. And I, I, you know, having talked to hundreds and hundreds of writers over the years, there are the outliers. There are some writers who truly do just love writing. You know, like they, yeah. they don't find the process onerous at all, but they are the exception and not the rule. I, I think <laughs> it's sort of like golfing and, you know, uh, forgive the uh, comparison, but it's like, you know, it's a really difficult game where you fail a lot, even if you're good at it. Or, or like hitting a baseball, where to be good at hitting a baseball, you fail seven out of 10 times. Right, yeah. But yeah, yeah. when you get a hit or you hit a good golf shot, the feeling of connecting, like if you've ever done that, even as a, as a recreational player, like if you've ever gone to a batting cage and really connected, or you've ever gone to a driving range and hit like a, you know, a, a freakish like 300 yard drive, that feeling is really good. And yeah. it's what keeps people coming back for more. And I think that that, is a you know could loosely be compared to what it feels like to have a good writing day where you get a thousand words that really work and you're kind of in it and if you have a day like that it can compensate for having like six shitty days <laughs> yeah oh yeah no 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 question yeah those those are the days when it, you you feel like you feel like you're you've earned your you paid your rent for your existence on earth yeah yeah even, like, if, okay. even if nobody ends up reading it <laughs> Right. Well, it's just like, okay, I'm not like crazy. Like I can do this a little bit or this, you know, maybe this thing has some legs and could work out. And, you know, you just have to be willing to sort of slog through it. And, you know, the other thing too, is that it typically takes a really long time to write a book, uh, like years, not months, you know, to write a book in six months, you know, I know some people are super prolific and fast and can do it, but even with my book, which in its final draft, kind of shot out of me in a six month span or thereabouts. It's a total, uh, it's totally misleading to characterize it that way because it took so many years to get to the point where I could do that. I wrote entire failed novels, many of them, and yeah, yeah, yeah. did all these crazy experiments where I'm blindfolding myself and, you know, and then avoided it. And I mean, like all of it, you know, goes into it. And then finally you get to a point where, you know, the combination of all those experiences leads you to a state and into a time where you can actually get it done in a way that's that's right so i think that's more often the case than somebody just like sitting down with a great idea and you know hitting a home run at the first at bat i mean every once in a while that'll happen but it's uh it's it's a rarity yeah well and, and I mean, part of what you're talking about too is is like like practice and expertise like you know the story about Jodo and the circle no the, the painter Jodo or Jado uh he, he was I forget what it was some prince or pope or somebody uh demanded a you know the, the a painting from him demanded that he sort of demonstrate his his greatness as a painter and he had some big run-up where it took him a long time and he, he put it off and put it off and then he finally showed up and he he walked up to, I don't know if it was a canvas or whatever the surface was, but he, he dipped a paintbrush in paint and then he spun his arm around and he painted a perfect circle. And, and the, you know, the question was, well, why did it take you so long to do that? And he was like, well, <laughs> because it's perfect. Like right. you don't know what I was, what I've been doing for the last three years, but right. you know that that's a perfect circle. Right, right, right. I mean, I think that's kind of it. And it's mysterious how it happens. I, uh, I certainly hope that my next book doesn't take as long 
I like to, <laughs> I like to think that it won't, you know, that I don't, because like, you know, the truth is that my first novel was so, much the same. I wrote entire bad books. Yeah. Uh, and I think this is actually pretty common. I think you have to, like, I remember reading years ago, years and years ago, some interview with Philip Roth, where he was talking about his work ethic and practice or whatever, and how, you know, he was one of these workaday writers, which most really good novelists are who, you know, he would get up and just work an eight to 10 hour day, yeah. like six or seven days a week. He would go to his little office or whatever, his desk and just work. And he would finish a book and the next day would start the next thing. And basically it just meant he would just kind of dick around and write and try things out. And he would say that he would write about 500 pages or so. And from that 500 pages would eventually find maybe five to 10 pages from the pile that were worth anything, which would help him begin what would eventually become the next book. Right. So it's heartening to hear that from somebody who, you know, was as skilled as he was because, you know, you start to realize that's just the game, you know, that's the work you go through and you fail and you fail and you fail and you just have to show up. And if you, if you're doing that and you're writing things that don't ultimately pan out, you're not doing it wrong. <laughs> well, and, and because if you do it, if that story works where you, you write a, a handful of failed books and then you write the successful one, part, part of what's so painful about that is that with each failed book, you have to believe this is going to be the one. Yeah. And you can't like, think it's a practice novel, you know? No, no, you're always thinking you're getting it, you know? And so it's really dispiriting when you realize that a book has failed, you know, or that it's just not, it's just not right. Yeah. And there's something very intuitive and personal about knowing when something is working, knowing when you're saying what you want to say and the way that you want to say it. And I think for me, you know, with the failed versions, there were moments in the process when I obviously thought I was on the right track. And then eventually, you know, you start to accrue enough days where it's just not working. And eventually you concede, you know, and that can be hard to do because I am like, you know, personality wise, not somebody who quits easily. You know, I, I with this book, I tried to quit. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, you know, there were moments and spans of time where I was like, fuck it, you know, it's too much. I can't do this. And then eventually, you know, you, the, you just come back. I, you know, I can't shake it. There are a lot of pandemic books that were written that benefited from not having to apologize for being kind of a shut in or, you know, yeah, like yeah. working. Like, what else were you going to do? You weren't going to go to a restaurant. You weren't going to go to a movie. You couldn't go to a friend's house, you know? So when those things are taken away and you don't have to feel bad about not wanting to do any of them anyway, you know, right. yeah, I, I think yeah. there's something beneficial about that to a, a writer because, you know, there's just less apology or something and it just gave me a cocoon. And then I should also say at a practical level that we had childcare for the, the like live in childcare for Holy the months shit. that it, yeah, well, <laughs> it it's, a, it's a difference. A, yeah, it's a unique set of circumstances yeah. because my son, uh, who has disabilities, physical disabilities, uh, has an aide at school who would attend school with him to help him get around. And when lockdown went into place at the very beginning of the pandemic in 2020 or whatever it was, we just had this day where his aide was like, well, I, you know, I still need my job. And we well, were she's, like, she's solely his aid. She's yeah, solely, oh, yeah, wow. He, okay. he, he was just learning how to walk. He just didn't, he didn't start walking until four. Right, right. So he's unsteady on his feet. So he needs somebody to help him move around. And, uh, 
you know, he can also fall. He doesn't right. uh, catch himself the way that somebody with uh, a typical physical situation would. So it can be dangerous. You know, he could fracture a skull or break a bone or whatever. So you kind of need somebody to be a body on him. And so we just had a moment where we had to talk to his aide and say, you're either going to move in with us or we can't have you work for him, be, right. you know, work with him because you're going to be in and out and ex possibly exposed to the virus because he's also at a higher risk with his right. situation. So right. we went overnight you know, from, you know, not having a live, a live in aid to <laughs> right. having her live with us. And the fact that she lived with us and was able to help him with his, um, you know, teleschool or whatever it was, and just sort of be an extra, per, like an extra hand on deck. Uh, yeah. That's a godsend. Godsend. And it didn't last. She eventually was like, Oh my God, I'm burned out. I'm moving up <laughs> to a, she moved to a ski town and yeah. was like, went, went to be a hippie as she properly yeah. should have at age 24. But, right. um, you know, like if I'm just being honest about how I got the book done, those were huge factors. And and like yeah. just to know that like, you know, I'm out back working on my book and my wife is not alone inside fending right. for herself with both kids. I mean, like that gives me some relief. You know how it is? I don't know. Do you have kids? I don't know if you I do. Yeah. No, I mean, I was, I was home with them for two years, basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like it just becomes, you know, the guilt, like that can take away from your ability to concentrate. You just yeah. get, you're feeling like shit. You're like, this is such a selfish, you know, like <laughs> enterprise or I got to get inside and, you know, I don't right. know, but like I was able to, especially during, I think like early school hours, I would get up early and work, but those first couple of hours of the school day in particular. Yeah. That's, that's the good stuff. It was just my time and I didn't, I didn't have to worry as much as I normally would have. And, you know, it's not, it doesn't seem like some kind of accident that the book got done during that span in retrospect. That makes sense. And I'm, I'm yeah, I'm glad, glad for y'all and for your son and for your uh, caretaker that that all, that that worked out. Yeah. I mean, I, his aid, the poor thing to have to live where you work. Um, <laughs> well, now, she, now she's going to go write her, uh, <laughs> go for the mountains and write her novel about the Listy family. She is. She's going to write her, yeah, her tell all memoir about like what we're actually like to live with. I mean, that was like, I, I would be un honestly in interested to hear like her interviewed on sodium pentothal. I, I mean, you know, like when you live with another family, like imagine somebody being in your home and like seeing how you oh, operate. God. Uh, unthinkable as a father and as a parent. I mean, like, it's just such an imperfect situation. And did, did you have a spare room properly or did you yeah. have to? Okay, yeah. good. All we right. had a, we have a spare room. So she had her own space that way, which, you know, was the only way that it could have worked. Right. But yeah, I, there were moments like, I, I think we're actually like a pretty functional family, you know, in the grand scheme, like, uh, there are certainly families that are more dysfunctional. Do you know what I'm saying? Like yeah, 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 it's sure. all on a spectrum, but I think we're doing pretty well. Like we, yeah. we love each other and we're pretty respectful. We're not like a huge, like shouting household or anything like that, but you are still like, like making decisions as a parent just day to day. And you have some third party who's like observing going like, I don't know if I would do it that way. <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know if I would make that choice. And yeah. you know, you're making all these decisions as a parent against the backdrop of professional concerns and right. you know god knows what's going on so it's not like happening in a vacuum you know and uh it was a little unnerving but maybe it was good maybe it kept me on my toes maybe i was like better or something during that period because i knew i had like a 
like an anthropologist in my house observing me. Yeah, like, an, like an external super ego who's, yeah, right. who's, ex, who's like, because she's 24 and ha doesn't have kids of her own is like, can be extra judgmental for you, you know? Right. I mean, it's just like, yeah, kind of like 24 and like, sort of like, no, this isn't the way to do it. And, you know, also like very, like a very like spiritual, like kind of hippie-ish person who has like ideas about how to like handle human relationships or I don't know. I, uh, I definitely could feel like judgment, like a natural judgment, not like yeah, any, yeah, yeah. not anything, ho you know, overboard, but it's kind of an impossibility that it wouldn't be there. You know, I guess you take the good with the bad. She was a godsend. She's lovely, uh, you know, and helped us a ton, but yeah. Well, you, have, just you hope... have to give me her contact information so I can interview her myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. People, people can try to track her down and get the truth about <laughs> truth about me. was my conversation with Brad Listy. Again, you can find him on the Other People podcast, O-T-H-E-R-P-P-L. I hope you did enjoy it. You should go check out his book, Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. It is now available wherever you buy books from. I'll try to include a link directly to the publisher, which I believe is IG or I-G, however you pronounce that. You can reach me, and please do reach me at sleevericketts at gmail.com. Uh, do give, a, give, give us a few more questions. Alice and Brian and I are still planning to do an AMA and Ask Me Anything, a, a question and answer episode. We've got a good list of questions, but we would love to get a few more. So please do write in some questions for Alice or Brian or me or all of the above, and we will get to answering those soon. You can reach me at the email address, sleevericketts at gmail.com, or on Twitter at Slee Ricketts. Thanks very much for listening, and with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. Yeah.